Lord, we ask for shalom for weary travelers. Uh, that's a selfish one this morning for those of us that were on the road yesterday. We ask for shalom for those whose travelers didn't make it home. Difficult moments, and yet you bring peace even to families whose loved ones don't come back. Lord, we ask for shalom for first responders who often meet those two travelers in the middle. Lord, give weary people peace and grace. Above all, give them you, that they would find your peace and your grace. You are great and mighty. In the most joyful of moments, a church family gathered together and singing and praising you. And in the toughest of moments, at hospital beds and in broken relationships. And we need your peace. So, Lord, give us shalom. Give us weary travelers peace. Lord, we ask for Sabbath for Pastor Benji and his family. Having traveled away, that they would have peace and your shalom, your grace. Comfort and encourage them as they enjoy this sabbatical time. And then bring them back quickly to us. That we would rejoice together in renewed relationship. We praise your name. Amen. I don't know if you saw the news, that prayer ties into uh, the end of our journey yesterday uh, for the Navajo team, the Rehoboth trip. Uh, we were on the 166 and there was an accident uh, where amazing first responders were helping those in need. Uh, it caused us to have to reroute and come uh, a longer road to the north and then down through Paso. Um, but if you see that news, we were right on the heels of them within 20 minutes. Uh, so we are some weary travelers, but there are others that have a much wearier road than we did. Than we did. We got home at 12:30 last night after thinking we'd get back at 8 p.m. Uh, so when you see that team later, uh, give them a hug and <laughs> encourage them. Uh, but it is a joy to be here with you and to get to rejoice with our church. Today is a little bit of a different sermon, too, when we talked about the schedule and that it was a one service and that we would be driving home the night before. Um, at first, I thought, I, I can't do that. And then I very quickly thought, I want to do that. Uh, I want to go through there. And then when I saw that it timed out with Romans 8, I was even more excited. It is an, an interesting passage um, in light of that, that moment on our journey as well, because Romans 8 talks about the groanings of this earth. But I want to start with a little more positive uh, set of pictures. I was asked, I want to say it was in May, it might have been June, the early part of June, but I think it was the end of May by somebody that um, I bump into in circles uh, with the city, and they were asking what I do as a youth pastor. And so I explained to them, which is always a fun thing, and, and sometimes I'll ask, how long do you have for me to explain? And I don't mean a half hour, but I mean, you know, do you want the five-second explanation, the 30-second explanation? Of course, I can give a half hour. But it made me think of something I've wanted to do for a while, which is shoot a video of what my office looks like. And I don't mean just my office. If you've seen it, it's a mess. 
And I love it that way. And I usually know where everything is. I'm that kind of person. Uh, I'm very organized, but it's a mess, if that makes sense. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you can't comprehend how those two things can coincide at one time. But I've wanted to, for a while, take videos of that and then take an old computer and a small, beat-up school desk or something and take it to Hume and ride down the the inner tubes, uh, the tube run with this desk and a laptop and take it on uh, the trip to us, uh, with us on mission trips and different things. I haven't done a video yet, but I did this summer snap a couple pictures of my desk. Not my office, but my desk. So we're going to start with these. They really have nothing to do with the sermon other than this is where I've prepped this sermon. That is the best office ever, by the way. At least the best view. I actually think my office is the best office ever. But the view, that was Wildwood as I was doing devotions. This one is the Ravine Water Park. I'm at in one of the cabanas, and as the kids were running around and popping in and out, and as I ordered food, the cabanas are wonderful that way, as I, except it's a Pepsi, they don't have Coke. That is a drawback. That, however, is not a Pepsi. It's a Pepsi cup. That's a root beer or maybe a lemonade. I can't remember which I ordered at that point, but I worked on my sermon, hopped in the lazy river. It's a tough life. Somebody has to do it, but uh, went back and worked on my sermon series a little more. The next slide, I don't think I was working on the sermon at this point, but this is part of my job now. I get to add it to my list of, of uh, responsibilities. I am now a sheep shearer. We got to do that a couple of us Monday, and this is way on the reservation, um, up near Four Corners. We traveled at, not that far towards Four Corners from where we started, I guess, but we traveled quite a bit up the road um, that direction to the Musket Ranch. Uh, it's a multiple generations Navajo um, sheep farm, and they let us help shear. I'm horrible at it. I'm not good at all. You do not get a good sheep haircut if you visit me, but it was fun to get to use their grandparents' shears, clippers, not the electric ones, but hand clippers, to shear their sheep. I'm pretty good about calming a sheep when, things are, when they're not liking the haircut, um, not so good with the, the shears myself, but that one was in there. I might have thought about the sermon, but that was mostly just so I could say in front of all of you that I'm now a sheep farmer. Not a good one, but I'm a sheep farmer. This is another one. This was yesterday. Driving in my car, often with students, sometimes with sleeping students, and I'll start thinking about the sermon. If you're noticing my goatee, I don't remember what was going on in that picture, but I did tease it out right before the picture. It's not normally quite that shape. Uh, it can get there. I get scruffy sometimes and need my own shearing, uh, but that was the drive. And then, is there one more? Did I already miss it? Oh, this was my desk uh, on the Navajo trip this year, uh, and actually the bed where I slept next to it. I work on both of those at different points. So. If you've wondered, that's the life of a youth pastor, an ever-shifting desk while working on sermons and doing odd things like shearing sheep or playing code names and apples to apples with our students, but also worshiping with them and challenging them and hearing how God has used them as we're going to hear in a little bit. But first, I want to take you to Romans 8. We left off around verse 16 
But 8-1 is the one that I want you to remember right now as we continue on and pick up at 18. So I'm going to start at 8 verse 1, even though if you remember two weeks ago, it's a bad chapter break. It really connects to 7 and continues on through at least the first 16 verses. Paul didn't write in chapter breaks. Those were added, which is why I've encouraged you to be reading Romans, and I know some of you have throughout the summer in this series. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He's going to continue that thought throughout 8, and then he's going to add to it at the end that there's no separation. If you catch nothing else, or if I'm not coherent this morning, remember those two things. At this part in the Romans road, Romans 1.3, that we are condemned, all of us, in so many ways. But wonderfully, the gospel doesn't stay there. It turns to 4 through 6, that we are forgiven, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. I know that's Ephesians 2, not Romans 4 through 6. Romans 4 through 6 is just a big, expanded, long-form version of that. But we were condemned. We are now saved. Then we get to 6 and 7, that we're slaves to righteousness, no longer slaves to sin, that we are freed from the law, but that we struggle. And what do we do? But thanks be to, to God, because through Christ, there is no condemnation. If you have put your faith in Christ, it does not matter what happens at that point, but you will no longer ever again be condemned. Now, Romans 12 says it does matter how you live, but not in regards to condemnation. You are never again condemned. The whole world was condemned by sin, but if you have put your faith in Christ, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's 8-1. That's where we left off. I'm going to skip the other verses in there, but they go with it. you got to remember that and pick up at 18. We had left off at 16 and 17. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re- revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is a packed section. All of Romans 8 is a lot. In fact, a few months ago, we started a DVD series on Sunday nights that went through Romans 8. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go find out about it or look it up or See if you can borrow it from us, or especially if you missed a particular Sunday and you want to catch up on it. But it was excellent. It's a good series. That doesn't mean you're going to agree with all of it, because some of these are things that people discuss and debate and think through. What does that mean? How do we understand that? But it is so packed, I cannot, in the 15 minutes or so that I'm going to take on Romans 8, before we give you a little bit of information from our mission trip, I can't catch all of it. I promise you, as I highlight a few things, there's going to be something I miss. Great. Send me an email. Let's talk about it. Or talk about it with your Sunday school class. Some of them I might pick up, one of them in particular, in a couple weeks. But these are just some of the highlights that pop out to me that I wanted to share with you. And the first one comes in that first part of what I was reading, the middle of the chapter, though, where it talks about our present sufferings and creation groaning. This broken world, broken by Adam's sin, Romans 5, broken by our sin, Romans 1 through 3, this world throws suffering in our way all the time. Some of it is our own dumb action, and some of it is just what we encounter. And yet Paul looks at that and says, this present suffering, it's going to end is nothing in comparison of what awaits us. He's not belittling it, but he's looking at all of it. He's looking at cancer and loss. He's looking at politics and government and things that so often get broken or that we're frustrated with, and trust me, their government, worse than whatever you're frustrated with about ours. The day-to-day life of just trying to find food And trying to keep it for tomorrow, especially when you don't have a refrigerator to do that. All of it, the present suffering, is nothing compared to what's coming. But don't misunderstand that, especially as it relates to 828, where it says, For those who love God, all things work together for the good. That doesn't mean that God or Paul or Scripture is calling those things good. He still recognizes its suffering. God doesn't deny that bad things happen. In fact, quite often, he's the only one calling it bad. 
Paul here is simply saying there is better coming. This difficult moment is not the utmost. There is a greater existence that lies in our future for those that are in Christ. But then he also recognizes that this world is groaning. It's not just us that is angsty when we encounter suffering. This world may not understand it because it doesn't have the intelligence that we have, but it knows that it's off. The animals around us that do have brains, not like ours, but even the planet and creation, all of creation knows something went wrong at the fall. And it is groaning and longing for restoration. But that day is coming. 828, at no point does God call the accident that we encounter a good thing. And the families that are dealing with the ramifications of that, God doesn't look at them and say, you should call that good. But he does say, for those that are Christians, I will make things right. If not today, then in the end. I will make all things right. We carry the pain of these experiences, but 8.1, the joy of no condemnation, and then 8.38 and 39, the reality that nothing can separate us from God, and then eventually that God will return and restore, means all bad things. God will work for good, not call good, but he will bring about in the end good, even if it is only eternity and restoration in the future that we are looking forward to that is going to bring that about. God redeems bad things for good. Verse 31 and 34. I'm jumping, as I said. This is a packed set of verses. 31 through 34. I'm going to read them again, and then I'm going to try to help you picture what I think is going on there. What then shall we say to these things? Everything that has to be redeemed. If God is for us, who can be against us? He, do not, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 31 through 34 puts us in a court scene. I don't know about anybody else, but I love John Grisham novels. I love crime procedurals and courtroom dramas. This is the best one ever. We're the ones that are on trial. Let me, let me lay it out for you in some terms that it uses and try to, try to paint that picture that's, that's there as the cross comes into play in it. You have God the Father who is the judge, but here's the thing, the judge is for us. I don't mean that he's a corrupt judge, I just mean he's for us. But the Father is the one who is making the ruling. Jesus is our advocate. He's the one interceding for us. He's the defense lawyer. As we get brought into court, we see the familiar face of God, and he is on the throne, and he is by our side. 
He's the wronged one, and yet he's for us. And the defendant is us. We are guilty and rightly on trial, and yet, if you're in Christ, he has declared us justified and that we are his. And so he defends us. There's one that's not mentioned here, but it is a biblically implied reality of that courtroom scene, and it's this. Satan is the only accuser. If we are in Christ, if we put our faith in Christ, Satan is the only one that is shouting anything in the courtroom. But he is not an official role. He's the previous case getting taken away in shackles who is losing his mind and shouting and nobody cares. That's the reality of Satan. I don't mean he doesn't matter. I just mean he doesn't matter for our trial. He's the accuser getting walked away. And here's the reality. There's no actual plaintiff. There's no one left. God is the one who would rightly fill that role. And he is chosen through Christ to declare us justified rather than prosecute us. Like any illustration, that might break down. But that's what I see when I read that passage. That God is not against us. He's for us. And he's the only one that could be standing against us. And so Paul lands then on nobody can separate us. If the wronged party has declared things right and made things right, there is no one left, no matter how much Satan shouts as he's drug out of the room in chains, there is nobody left that can separate us. And so we get to that final part. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the end of the matter. Now like any good preacher, Paul is going to keep talking for a very long time. But that's the end. There's no separation, no condemnation, no separation. Anytime I read those verses, by the way, I get ushered right back to Hume Lake in 1990, 91, 92, and Joel Weldon singing those words, and my buddy Mark, whose song, whose, that was his favorite worship song at the time, and a moment that we just experienced on the mission trip where quite often youth groups and people at camp and in different places, like young people, I should say, will put their arms around each other and they'll start swaying as they're singing. And that song starts ringing out in my head every time. And it's a beautiful scene because it's an eternal one, not just a high school memory. I don't know what groanings you're facing today, but you need to come to 38 and 39 and and embrace that eternal reality. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says, there's nothing left. I included everything in that list when I said at the end, nothing else created. In case I missed one, I tacked one in there to cover it all. Nothing can separate you or me 
or anyone sitting around you or anyone who has ever existed that called on the name of the Lord from his love. And that's how God makes all things good. That's how God redeems the worst of things because none of them can separate us from him if we put our faith in Christ. Let's pray and then go, don't go anywhere. Lord, I thank you for these truths. Romans 8 is such a hard-hitting, in a good way, wonderful passage that not even death can separate us from you for you conquered death. That there is no power, whether human or supernatural, that is in contest with you and has any leverage to defeat you, but you have conquered them all. Lord, I thank you that Satan is being taken away in shackles. That he can't beat us because you have defeated him. Lord, we live in the groanings and they are tough. From sleepless nights to the loss of loved ones. But you are victorious and you've made us victorious, more than conquerors, inseparable from you our God who is so holy and loves us so deeply. We praise your name, Lord. Amen.